the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, all alien alligators eat interstellar antelope. Turns out not to be the code phrase that opens the minds of Maria. Civic radar level rotor kayak reviver shootout at the Palindrome Corral. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. And I'm Editorial Assistant Christopher Rocchio. Hello, Christopher. Hello, Tony. We have part two this time of a two-part interview with Charles E. Gannon discussing Kane's Mutiny, the fourth entry in his Kane Reordan science fiction series. In Kane's Mutiny, Kane, our hero, travels to a very forbidding planet to meet some very crabby alien colonists and confront the surprisingly familiar Lost Legion, no spoilers here, that is making the raids on their settlements. It's a really entertaining entry in the series, and probably it's my favorite so far. And Chuck will tell us all about it. And as always, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. Now, here's the news. Hey, one of our two annual short story contests is now accepting submissions. Bain Books is excited to announce the fourth annual Bain Fantasy Adventure Award. The award recognizes the best original adventure fantasy short story in the style of fantasy greats like Larry Correa, Mercedes Lackey, Elizabeth Moon, Andre Norton, J.R.R. Tolkien, and David Weber. We're looking for blood-pounding, heart-stopping action with heroes you want to root for and villains you love to hate. Whether your heroes win the day with swords or sorcery, fireballs or flamethrowers, or even by their wits alone, all are welcome. Modern, medieval, and otherworldly settings are all acceptable, as long as you tell a rip-roaring good tale with a fantastical element. The contest is open for submissions until the 1st of April, 2017. Entries will be judged by Bain editors, and the award will be presented by author Larry Correa at the big gaming and science fiction convention Gen Con, which is held in August. And when you're at the Bain.com front page, which is where you'll find the link to the contest, be sure to check out the two new free fiction stories and the nonfiction article published there on the, on the front page. We have new free fiction and nonfiction at the middle of every month at Bain.com. This is part two of a two-part interview with Charles E. Gannon, author of Kane's Mutiny. Part one of the interview was on last week's podcast. I want to welcome Charles E. Gannon to the podcast. Hello, Chuck. Hi, Tony. Chuck Gannon is the Compton Crook Award-winning creator of the Kane Reardon Science Fiction Series. He's the co-author with Eric Flint of 1635 The Papal Stakes and... 1636, Commander Cantrell in the West Indies. Am I getting all this, all the uh, Ring of Fire books in that list? Yes, you did. Okay. And with Steve White, he co-authored two books in the long-running Starfire series, Extremist and Imperative. He's written stories set in David Weber's Honorverse and many other short stories. Chuck is a member of Sigma, the SF think tank, which has advised various intelligence and defense agency. 
He lives in Annapolis, Maryland. The first three books in the Cain Reorden series, Trial by Fire, Fire with Fire, and Raising Cain were nominated for a Nebula Award, and now out at Booksellers Everywhere is Cain's Mutiny, book four in the Cain Reorden series. I guess we shouldn't get much farther than this with, with the plot, because then Revelations have it. That first encounter where he is um, approaching the village that is, um, that's, that's, that's been uh, invaded or, or occupied, the way that he, um, he pushes against his command structure in order to, to try to save some of his, his troops and to figure out what's going on. Uh, kind of, that's sort of the setup of, of where we get to in the book in, uh, in the first uh, 50 pages or so. Down on Turksar. Well, to make to make a, a long story short, um, there's been an attack on what's called a, a Denkot, which is a not quite a or active. It's a small town by their standards, uh, um, and it was it was attacked by human uh, humans using um, unusual technology that they hadn't seen before. Actually, kind of record rate technology. And so he goes out there. Uh, this is one, not the first time this has happened. He's been Yargrau has been sort of charged with tracking this and and trying to find patterns and figure out what's going on. Uh, the humans are not giving a lot. They're not leaving a lot of clues behind, and they tend to hit, clear a place out, and move on. Uh, initially, they're very indiscriminate about whether they're how many they kill and what kind of hoofs they kill, but then later on they become they, there's evidently some effort to minimize casualties, and this is really there are these changes which which Yargrauk is he does not see these as as uh, as uh, uh, coincidence or inexplicable or meaningless. He feels that there that all of this adds up to something, so to speak. So. This attack on on Yulon, by the time he gets there, uh, the humans have left. But they haven't done what they normally do. They haven't taken everything away. But there's another call that comes in that indicates that a further, like a like a homesteading, even further away, has now been struck. So he runs off there. He leaves half of his force back in Yulon to to essentially do relief plus defense, and takes the other half to try to again track down these humans because he's he's motivated both and engage them, but also possibly, if possible, to talk to them. Uh, right now, he's dealing in an, in an intelligence vacuum, and he needs to get some intelligence. Uh, and his hope is that, and he has some suspicions, that he might be able to talk this conflict down uh, and maybe settle it. Uh, but as you say, we can't go too far with that without giving a lot of things away. However, it turns out when he gets out to this, this, uh, this homestead that there's nothing left to be done. And he's finding this a little bit perplexing. And then there are other things that he, he starts putting two and two together. And he gets kind of concerned. Have I been, have I been drawn out here? You know, was, was I pulled out here to, uh, to, to be, uh, you know, was this a draw play? So he hustles back. Um, he gets back and it turns out that, uh, there was a second attack on Yulog in his absence. Uh, much of the force, the holding force he left there. Has apparently had to go to ground, and the the, uh, the instructions he's getting from the uh, nervous and uh, less than totally confident uh, leader, the new leader of uh, Turkestar, is to 
charge right across that plane right away with all of his because it's because Yulog sits in the middle of a of a of a flat area hemmed in by uh, what you might call forests and hills and a very a variety of terrain features features it's sitting in a plate if you will in the middle of them and uh, Yargrauf basically says look you know we only have two or three hours of daylight left uh the humans never operate at night um there's if i set up out here if they try to attack you log again i will be able to see them and hit them uh let's just wait this out and this goes back and forth and he actually manages to creatively uh interpret uh an order so that only he only his car his reconnaissance car makes the run to it back into so that he can find out what went on there a little bit, and um, and but that gets him in, in real trouble uh, with uh, with the command staff, and they go around him anyhow and give a direct order to his uh, to the rest of his unit, uh, which is summoned into Yolov, and uh, before long, about at the midway point, predictably, that's when the other half of the of the assault, the hammer comes down, and uh, the 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 unit the second half of his unit is is pretty much destroyed and he gets in uh, in big trouble uh with the uh, the powers that be and uh his his attempt to uh make contact and maybe figure out what's going on and even possibly bring an end to the raiding uh is pretty much at an end at that point yeah well let's um let's go back to commodore riordan um for a bit up in space, um, he uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, the some of Kane's crew members. These are people we've been following. Um, most are soldiers, uh, but not all. Uh, Melissa Sleeman, I believe, is not. And um, there's a kind of a political officer on board as well. Can you tell us some of your your favorite of the uh, crew? Well, Melissa Sleeman is is a lot of fun uh, to write, and she really comes into her own in this book. Um, again, can't give away spoilers, but it turns out that Turksar is more than just a colony world. Uh, Turksar was a um, was a had other finds of immense significance and strategic importance for the Hukra, and she's the one who really tweaks to the telltale signs of such a thing taking place. Uh, she is, uh, in, when if you were to think about a scientist who is a jack of all trades, that's Melissa Sleeman. Uh, she is, uh, she's, her, her specialty is life science, but she is no slouch when it comes to physics and broadly, just broadly planet, planetary sciences in general. Uh, so she, she, and, and her skills become quite quite central to this plot. You know, usually you think, well, it's a, it's a book with a lot of military action in it, and it is. I, I don't know that I would say that most of the books I write, for instance, I would say that, that this book and Trial by Fire, the second book in the series, are definitely military science fiction books. The first book and the third book, Fire with Fire and, and Raising Cain, eh, somewhat, uh, but, uh, but for a military science fiction novel, which this is, there's a lot of science in it, too. And I think it was, and and not always the science that you would expect would be important. In this case, geology, uh, planetography, um, uh, 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 genetics, a whole bunch of things come into play in a very, very important and revealing way. 
And so she's a lot of fun in that regard. Part of the other thing that makes her fun is that her background is is quite a mix. Dutch, Dutch, uh, Indonesian, Sierra Leone, and one or two other. Um, and she's sort of one of these these examples of uh, of the blending the blending of nations, which is which is occurring, but did not occur probably quite as fast as as it would have due to some really tough times in the middle of this century, um, the one we're in right now. But she's a she, her cultural mix also gives her a kind of interesting perspective. Um, and uh, and interesting, if you will, sort of uh, cultural approach to things. So one of my other favorite characters, without doubt, uh, an, another female character in it is uh, is uh, um, uh, Dora Veriden. Her first name is Pandora, actually, um, which is kind of interesting if you consider the origin of the word Veri Veriden, uh, having to do with truth. Uh, she is definitely from a different. She will. She sees the world through a very different set of eyes. She was part of that world that was not uh, up and coming in the latter years of the 21st century and has been uh, a huge beneficiary of technological advances in this early part of the 22nd century. She has a much grimmer perspective on what the world was like as little as 30 and 40 years ago. And uh, she brings that reminder and perspective to this crew. Uh, and she's also, she's also just the sort of... Uh, uh, you know, she's tough as nails, but in some ways, uh, we don't think it at first, but in some ways she is more loyal and more concerned with, with I guess, the glue that holds the group together than many others. Because she hasn't had a lot of family, and this is a pretty good bunch of people, and she's not really willing to let this dissolve. It's, it's perhaps a little more meaningful to her than, than some of the others. Uh, the political officer, as you mentioned, is... Probably people will think he's new. Uh, he was seen very briefly, actually, back in uh, in Trial by Fire. His name is Duncan Solson. He was a CIA analyst who turns out to have been recruited into IRIS. Uh, and we saw him very briefly in the second book when uh, Trevor Corcoran, uh, another major character who we haven't seen for a little while, we've heard a little bit about his sister on and off, but Trevor will come back into the line again as well. Uh, Trevor uh, has to has to get some some inside scoop, and he has to call somebody he can trust and somebody who will be willing to maybe veer close to the line of of dropping some intel that shouldn't be dropped. So he calls the the one of the overnight desks uh, at at in Langley, and the person he speaks to is Duncan Sultan. So folks who like to keep a keep an eye on characters who sort of pop up and seem like they're going to be forgotten and then they come up later, this is an example of it, because he's one of the major characters in this book mm -hmm. and sets the sets the action moving in some unusual direction. And I think for a good part of the book, it is unclear exactly who he's working for and what he's going to do. Yeah, and part of this is what comes into the, uh, what his orders are and what Kane's are is what comes into the title, but... We'll find out about that. Um, tell us also about the Cold Dream Guards, which is a really cool group of, of soldiers, the Cold Guards, as they, I guess they decide to call themselves that. Well, yeah, there's, everything gets, if it's military, everything gets shortened down to its, uh, to its absolutely minimalist uh, presentation. But the Cold Guard are a, um, they were a group of soldiers for, uh, High tier level operators in select units. Most, 
there was a there was a whole lot of military force left in Delta Pavanus three, one of the, which is pretty much the first um, the first alien planet we see in the entire series, and we we tend to keep getting references to it. It's a uh, it's kind of central in the in the in the politics and the evolution of a number of relationships and species, um, but. Uh, they were stationed there with a whole lot of other troops and a whole lot of ships. And the reason for this is, for folks who know the second book, um, uh, Nolan Corcoran, Trevor, Trevor Corcoran's dad, uh, had vague suspicions that something like this was going to happen for reasons I will not unpack here. We'd be here for another hour. Um, but his notion was, the hammer's going to come down on Earth. We're not going to be able to stop it. But if we can make them think they have crippled us, that they have inflicted uh, you know, essentially uh, devastating casualties upon our upon our formations. If we're able to jump back into our home world with our best stuff, once they have taken up residence in our gravity well, uh, we're going to be able to level the playing field. Doesn't mean we're going to win, but we're going to have a better chance than we would have. Which is, of course, what happens. Now, not everybody gets called into to to be part of what's called the RTF, which was our our, uh, uh, Relief Fleet One, uh, I think it was called. Uh, I know I have that wrong, uh, but at any rate, uh, and it's called the Ragtag Fleet. Um, so that is, uh, they were left behind. They were not included in that. They were just about the only unit that wasn't. Um, and the reason they were left behind is uh, actually not fully explored here. It will be explained in greater detail on down the line. Uh, they had a, actually a far more specific purpose than people in this book are speculating. But uh, what they are essentially is a mixed group from a variety of nations, mostly from what's called the um, the, uh, the the United Commonwealth and Allied States, uh, which we now pretty much call the Five Eyes. And uh, they are uh, they're a, they're about a, a reinforced platoon in size. They've never worked together before. They are all highly professional, and they were left behind as a swing force in case uh, something, in case things didn't go well in the liberation of Earth. They might be needed for other missions uh, that could span the gap from uh, essentially sabotage to security for a, uh, a desperate recolonization attempt. So uh, that's their origin. And they are assigned to go along with Kane to uh, provide the necessary muscle that if the humans that are suspected to be operating on the surface of Torxar raiding there uh, are not willing to come along quietly, uh, this is the means whereby they can be compelled to come along. And, um, and they're quite a mixed group. Um, and one of the things they all have in common is that they all essentially got Dear John or Dear, Dear Jane letters. Um, it, not literally the sort of the the you know the significant other breakup, but the bottom line is these folks have really um, really don't feel that they have much connection to Earth or home anymore because for one reason or another, most of which are not revealed, um, they have uh, they have either distanced themselves or or been excluded, if you will, exiled from what we would consider the the social bonds that would would fix them. To uh, to a, a desire to return to Earth. Yeah, they've also been asleep for five years in the cryo chamber. Yeah, they've yes, that's a really important thing. That's right. Um, one of the one of the big technologies in this um, 
in the series, one that uh, I've worked on a lot for folks of you who know uh, Robert Ham- Hampson, also known, of course, as, as Ted Roberts, also known, therefore, as speaker to lab animals. Uh, he and I went did a lot of work on uh, maximizing the realism of cold sleep technology, cryogenic stasis. Uh, I also worked with a, uh, a, a fairly uh, well-known analog author, uh, uh, out in, in St. Louis, who's a cardiac surgeon who also specializes in cryogenic surgery or, or knows, certainly is very familiar with the process, has used it, has overseen it. And, um, so that's a, a big technology. And this, this definitely plays into the, that's one of the reasons they're called the cold, the cold guard because they've been, they were in cold sleep for five years. But that means when they wake up, they, when they went to sleep, so to speak, there was no sign of, contact with any exosapiens alive or, or as an archaeological artifact of the past, there was no sign that that was going to happen. When they're awakened, they have awakened into a radically changed, a radically changed universe. And uh, takes a little getting for them getting used to. And uh, as, much as, as much getting used to as they have to do, there are other people in this book who have even more getting used to. <laughs> yes, there are. I'll let that hang. It's a science fiction novel, and there's lots of uh, technology and science and uh, relative levels of development between the species that, that play out in various ways. Can you give us an overview of some of the tech uh, we encounter as well as some of the weaponry? Absolutely. Um, one, of the, one of the most important, and for reasons I won't get into here, but it becomes in some ways the axle on which some of the power plays in this novel turn is cold sleep. When you think about it, because one of the things they discover on Torsar may change all of the current assumptions about cold sleep. But if you think about what cold sleep would do for a second, the social ramifications of you can get into a chamber, it takes actually about three or four days for full perfusion to take place. It does not, uh, you don't crystallize or anything like that. It, is, it actually doesn't go down to freezing, but through a very, very careful manipulation of all of this, you are uh, essentially brought into an extremely low um, borderline state between, if you will, uh, a, a kind of hibernatory hypothermia and death. And then you can be kept there. And we know from the first book already that although it was not many people were able in the first technology to survive 60 years of cold sleep, even yeah, even in the first generation of, of cold sleep technology, um, it was possible, therefore, to live for uh, to survive sixty years of uh, of suspension. Well, if you start thinking about then, as the technology gets better, um, what you can do with that uh, in terms, for instance, of disease. You have something that can't be operated on. Well, later. Um, you don't like the way the world is going right now, and you're wealthy, and you wealthy enough that you feel like you can let a trust fund roll over and come back up out again? Sure you do, which actually gives later on, there's this, there's a, a class, it doesn't show up in this novel, but people are starting to refer to folks like that as vampires. I mean, they go into their coffin, they wake up every once in a while, they feed on their trust funds, they stay or they don't, uh, they go back. And, uh, you know, and it's a coffin-like environment in a dark, you know, <laughs> in a dark place. So uh, this, is a, this is a major social change. It's changing the notion of what people mean when they say lifespan. It changes the entire notion when you talk about a generation, because the generation is not necessarily all living and dying roughly as a unified cohort. They're actually splitting up now. Um, so 
there's also um, obviously people refer to it as FTL, but there is not faster than light travel. You don't go faster than light. You do, however, utilize field effects, which are um, which I had a lot of fun developing with. Um, I'm in Sigma, as 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 uh, as you as Tony said at the top of this, and one of the the people in Sigma is one of the high energy physicists out at the Inertial Fusion Lab out in the out in the West. I guess that's Livermore. I think it's Livermore. Yeah, Livermore. Mm-hmm. And um, I sent him. I sent him my my notion on this, and I didn't hear back from him for two weeks, and I was I was really scared. I was figuring he didn't want to disappoint me, and I, I emailed him and I said, Ian, are, you know, is this uh, is this really out to lunch? And he said, No, no, I, I I've been I just been geeking out on it. He said I can't find anything wrong with it. Now that doesn't mean it can be done. That simply means I didn't violate anything. Um, and uh, and so that's been that's a lot of fun. And the thing about the for me as as a I like limitations. And what I mean by that is uh, I think that when important things are difficult to do, that's a real good engine for driving drama. So in this case, I felt that both likelihood of if we ever do achieve something where we are getting we are getting from point A to point B in less time, not faster, in less time, in terms of velocity, in less time than than light itself, that's going to be really expensive. That's going to require a lot of infrastructure. That's going to require some science, energy density issues that we don't, and 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 unified field theory understanding of how, if you will, macro macro physics and microphysics all fit together. We just don't have now. But I set benchmarks based on some some really crude physical benchmarks that are actually based off of known phenomena and said those are the benchmarks that have to be hit. And then that drove what the, if you will, what the technology was that would be required to perform that feat. Um, so while there is, quote, FTL, it's expensive, it's infrequent, um, it is dicey, if, not if you do it right, but it's really easy to do it wrong. And one of the big, one of the big drivers, therefore, is how far can you go um, in, a, in a single ship? Because it's instantaneous. It takes about five weeks for us to lead up to it. And that's with a huge infrastructure in place helping you every step of the way. But some of our, our if you will, our antagonists can do it in two or three weeks or even less. And they can go further. Where we're currently limited to about 8.5, 8.33 light years at a shift, they can go 10, 12, and in the case of the Dornani, it's been observed that they can do as much as 16. The Dornani also, there is some suggestion at the end of this book that they may be able to not merely shift between two stellar objects, which is necessary because the stellar objects create, if you will, a, a space-time distortion, if you will, in the gravitic, if, if, if you think about that, that model of gravity as a plane, right, with stars and things like black holes as these distortions, these mm-hmm. bowl-shaped the rubber depressions sheet. in yeah. it. We use that. That that changes the math of, if you will, the, uh, string theory. It's a deviation in string theory that we can predict and which can help us reassert. You start in one of those and you end at one of those. It's a lot easier to do that way. But there's evidence towards the end of this book that the Dornani may not have that limitation. The Dornani may be able to shift much shorter differences distances without relying on that kind of um, on that kind of if you will natural natural buoy if you will out in in the space time continuum which is one of those mysteries that's out there and 
folks are going to just have to see what that means. In terms of weapons, uh, the personal weapons range from anything that will look, <laughs> in this book particularly, extremely familiar, um, antiquated at moments, and uh, to things, for instance, that the Kator are, and they have to actually make sure that they don't leave any of their technology behind. They have gotten to the point where they have uh, human portable, um, uh, essentially coil guns, uh, you know, uh, railgun kinds of technology um, that is uh, that is commensurate with all of the technological advances they have in terms of ultra conductors and and focusing and you know one of the problems of course with these weapons that we experience is that the rails of the rings get out of out of alignment very quickly well it would be very different if for instance you had nanostructures inside of a plastic or a compound that actually create made essentially a smart compound in other words that yeah sure the rails of the rings deform but in fact the gun then pushes the if you will the 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 furniture of the gun pushes them back into alignment because it's we already now as you know we have all sorts of of uh compounds that have memory they have shape memory form memory this is this is like that on a on a uh, on a much more rigorous and advanced and precise scale but um so it's and a lot of smart weapons one of the things that i think i had a lot of fun with in this is the is the use of i guess you could say a really um you know, we talk about a net-centric battlefield, and we've been talking about that for 20 years and more. But that has always assumed big sensors, right? It's assumed the sensor in an aircraft, maybe, you know, maybe on a tank, satellites, etc., planes. Now, in this one, you're talking about quad rotors. You're talking about, you know, uh, creepers. You're talking everything that can detect. Is a, can essentially be linked in, and that creates a very, very different targeting environment. And I would like to—I'd like to think that some of the most intense combat moments of the book also are a kind of um, a little bit of a tour de force of what does it mean if we put all these things out there, and you, that this really is your advantage—that um, that it is your ability to build that kind of net, use that kind of net shift that kind of net so that as it takes losses and even in the face of environmental uh, impediments, you can maintain uh, the sort of force multipliers that come along with greater accuracy, better time on target, and all the rest. Um, so you've got, you've got everything in there from the sort of the soup to nuts and, you know, in terms of, in terms of personal arms, humans are using something that, uh, that I think is a, a kind of interesting idea. They're called liquimix rifles where fundamentally to just get really basic about it what happens if we go back to the notion that the uh, the warhead is not inherently in incontrovertibly slaved to the propellant what happens when you can break those two apart and i think the the tactical and uh, and the lethality and the versatility the scalability of effect all of all of the things that we normally consider to be hard limits really sort of become a whole lot more fluid once again um, so obviously I'm talking about stuff I love. So, uh, so people who want to see hardware, you, you won't be dis disappointed in this book. I don't think. Yeah. And it also, I mean, it, it really does have a feel of modern, modern conflict and war rather than, um, a retrograde with, I mean, you have drones and, and robots, like you say, and satellites and, and all of these are, are brought in quite effectively by Kane as he's, he's marshalling his forces. And it's it's really cool. The battle scenes are really cool. So, um, 
So what are what are you working on at the moment, Chuck? Well, let's see. Um, I literally uh, still have my files up, uh, and we'll return to them immediately after this uh, for Vatican sanction, 1636, uh, the Vatican sanction. That is obviously a ring of fire book. Uh, I've been looking forward to writing this one for a long time. Um, I'm a fan of political thrillers uh, of the 60s, particularly, um, written before I could read, but that doesn't make them any less my favorites. And this is, the, the alternate title for this book could be called Seven Days of May, because it takes place during seven days of May, and it ends fundamentally on Pentecost Sunday. Uh, and these are all significant factors, and um, the, the basic premise is, uh, for those of you who know the series, we have a wannabe pope in, in occupation of Rome, but the pope, the legitimate pope that he tried to kill, got away thanks to the intercession of the uptimers. And no short amount, no no short amount of, of downtime, uh, muscle, help, and ingenuity as well. Um, and uh, that pope is uh, making trouble for him. And so, Vatican sanction is indeed uh, a is a word with multiple multiple uh, meanings in this text. So I'm working on that. It's probably the most tightly plotted novel I've ever had to do. I mean, I've got what I have in front of me is a database. Split. It, it takes. All seven days, actually it takes a day on either side of it as well, and it breaks them into morning, noon, afternoon, evening, and night. And every event, because when you're dealing with a political thriller, and you're not dealing in global scale, when when all of your events are essentially taking place inside of the same city, um, you, you have, you know, this is stuff that moves very quickly. You have people, you know, virtually virtually passing each other in the street at certain moments who don't know, you know, who the other person is, what they're doing, how they're in, in, involved with this plot. So it's a lot of fun to write. It's a very different write for me. It's a, This is a lot more tightly plotted than I usually go. I don't write by the seat of my pants. I do have a, I have an outline and I, I ship the outline as I move forward through it. But this is a lot more uh, tightly plotted than that. And also, I wouldn't be surprised if it's one of my shorter novels. Um, which may be a disappointment to some and a great release to others. I'm also working on revising, uh, I'm soon to receive the, the draft of Calabar's War, 1636 Calabar's War, from uh, Robert Waters. I'm writing that with him. That's set in the New World. It's not a follow-on to uh, Commander Cantrell 1, uh, Commander Cantrell in the West Indies, but it is a character that we meet there, and it is an outgrowth of that, and it expands uh, the story and um, our view of, of the Ring of Fire universe as it is playing out along the Spanish main, parts of South America, and parts of the uh, uh, both the Windward and the Leeward Islands. And then I have already started, because this is the way I work, I, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm working on that novel, but what has always happened to me, and I don't know why this is, but it is, because my mind is ornery, I guess, um, so I might start working. I'm working right now on, on Vatican Sanction, but for whatever reason, now that I really know what I'm doing with Vatican Sanction, if I have an idea in the shower or driving on the road or something like that, it's for Mark Cain. So I've actually started, I've got some I've got some material in the can for Mark of Cain. I have a really good sense of all of the plot points of that novel. Uh, that, that I think is going to be a really cool novel. I will tell you this much. This will be, I guess, my tagline. At the end of Mark of Cain, the series turns 180 degrees. 
if you think there have been unexpected changes before now, just you wait and wear a seatbelt when you get to the end of market camp. <laughs> so uh, where are you going to be? And you, you have so much work on the table, but you also seem to, to get out and have appearances in the, in the coming uh, weeks and months. I, I do, in fact, and I'm doing less um, simply because, uh, you know, thank you, Tony Weisskopf. I have a lot of books to write, and I love that. Um, and since I'm also dad, and sometimes that's an unpredictable uh, role as well, I've, uh, I've basically, for an, at least a couple of years, I'm, I'm constraining my appearances a little bit. But um, this, for whatever reason, this year, all the ones that were, were uh, I just couldn't say no to because, quite frankly, they, they gave me money to go, um, uh, are taking place in this really uh, this really concentrated uh, 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 patch of time here. So I'm doing Heliosphere, which is uh, the first time this con is being done. It's in Tarrytown, New York. That's, I guess, about 20 miles north of New York City. And it's, I believe, it starts on March 10 and goes to March 12. I'm a special literary guest there, I believe. Um, I'm at uh, Albacon in Albany, New York, as the guest of honor there from March 31 to, I believe it is April 2. Yes, I get to be there as the April Fool. Um, it's only too fitting, I, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> I'm doing Jordan Con, um, a wonderful literary con, uh, which is in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm the guest of honor there. I am there from uh, April 21 to 23. And I don't know how this exactly works, but I am the... Um, I don't know if I'm the special, I think I'm the special literary guest of honor, which is a lot of titles, um, at RavenCon this year, uh, in Williamsburg, Virginia. And that, uh, that con cranks up on April 25. And it's, for me, it's a very happy return. Uh, I haven't really been able to afford the time to go to RavenCon for a couple of years. So there might be folks out there who've gone the last couple of years and they said, wow, geez, I always used to see you there. Well, you can see me there this year and I'll be looking mm-hmm. forward to seeing y'all. Balticon is this year's 1632 Minicon. Guest of honor is Eric Flint. Yay. Uh, hometown con for me, it is where the Compton Crooks are given out. It is also where the um, Robert A. Heinlein Award is being given out. And uh, Robert Sawyer is this year's recipient that was just announced, who wrote, if anybody, if anybody hasn't seen the absolutely embarrassing, uh, <laughs> wonderful review that, uh, that Robert Sawyer wrote for me, uh, Really, you should, so I can blush a little bit more. But uh, a great guy and, a wonderful, of course, a wonderful science fiction writer in the classic sense, meaning science fiction. So uh, I think there'll be a lot to do at Balticon as well. Yeah. Buddy in the area, come on up. Well, um, Out Now is Kane's Mutiny by Charles E. Gannon. It's book four in the Kane Reardon science fiction series, and it's at booksellers everywhere. Uh, Chuck, thank you very much for being with us. And thank you for having me on. Always love to be here, Tony. This was part two of a two-part interview with Charles E. Gannon, author of Kane's Mutiny. If you want to check out part one, it's on last week's podcast. Now we continue with our complete Audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, 
the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend, the cyberspy Adele Mundy. The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Corsera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. Chapter 27 Outside Havlinger on Corsera Adele worked at her usual station on the Kaisha, sifting the data from Arnaud's personal console. She allowed herself a smile, though it didn't reach her lips. She probably had the only complete copy of the contents now that Arnaud had melted the unit to slag. I wonder if he would like the data back now that things have settled down. Probably not. And in any case, Adele didn't see any reason to offer it. If Arnaud asked, she would consider the matter again. The watch officer, Pasternak, was asleep in his cubicle, and the three crewmen on duty were playing some sort of card game with Tovera in the hold. If necessary, Pasternak could light the thrusters and even lift the freighter into orbit using the computer's automated systems. The remaining RCN personnel were in Hablinger or were involved with salvaging the Pantellerian squadron. Pasternak was there on most days also. Indeed, he appeared to be overseeing the operation. He wasn't a young man, however. Daniel had rotated him back to the Kaisha today and for however long he was willing to rest. Although the chief engineer was technically a watch-standing officer, no one would willingly put him in a position in which he needed to run more than a fusion bottle, which he did as well as anyone else in the RCN. Corey and Cazalet were involved with repairs also, though they were in charge of crews which were reconfining the Cephasis and constructing the new harbor. Hablinger Pool was literally high and dry. It was easier to move the facilities to a new location than to force the river into its former channel. The latter might not even be possible with the available equipment. The Cephasis continued to eat away the previous levees as it tumbled 30 feet to the level of the rice fields. In the 15 days since the charge went off, the gap had expanded at least 10 miles back upriver. A freak of the breeze brought the sound of a power saw onto the Kaisha's bridge. Just as the southern Cephasis region was well stocked with mining supplies and equipment, so in the delta, supplies for working with water and soft earth were on hand. The huge earth movers were on flotation tires, but they still needed better support than they could get from soupy mud. As soon as a simple berm confined the river, the ground behind it would quickly dry to adequate stability. But that initial berm required trackways of structural plastic for the equipment to move on. The river's new western bank had been roughed in, so that the Kaisha was again on reasonably solid ground. Now the farther bank was under construction, and sheets for more trackway were being cut to size. Ordinarily, Adele would not have noticed outside noises while she was working, but the scanning she was doing at present wasn't really work. There was no rush on the business. In fact, there was no real purpose. She had time to think. She smiled with wistful humor. That was never a good thing for her. Because she had been immersed in a study of recent Pantellerian politics, her thoughts had swerved into particularly unpleasant channels. 
Within Adele's lifetime, Sinopar could have broken up as several different factions fought one another in a civil war that could not have a true winner. The fighting among powerful families would also have set off a class revolution in the slums of Xenos. Several, perhaps most of the worlds which the Republic ruled in a more or less paternalistic fashion would have declared independence. And all that would have happened even if Garantor Pora had not been stoking the fires for his own purposes, which he most certainly would have been. The Three Circles conspiracy had been funded in part by Alliance money. Adele was able to hope that her father had not known precisely where the funds were coming from, but Lucius Mundy had not been stupid or unobservant, he must have guessed. Cinnabar hadn't spiraled down into the chaos which now threatened Pantelleria because Speaker Leary had crushed the conspiracy. His tool had been the proscriptions, directing the death of thousands of his fellow citizens without trial, the murder of thousands of Cinnabar citizens, Adele's immediate family among them. And if I'd been advising Quarter Leary, I would have told him to do just what he decided to do on his own. Daniel wouldn't have ordered proscriptions. The most he might have done was to look the other way while his advisor, Lady Mundy, saved the Republic. That would have been good enough. Adele went back to sorting Arno's data and correlating it with the information from Mistress Sand's files. She wondered if she should share some of that information with Arno. Used wisely, it would greatly ease the job of remaking Pantelleria. Arnaud had regularly showed himself wise, particularly in taking advice when he realized his ignorance. Mistress Sand's clerks and administrators would oppose giving Arnaud information, since that might compromise the spies and techniques which had gathered it. Mistress Sand might herself agree with her underlings. But Adele Mundy was the officer on the ground. She was a librarian, not a bureaucrat, and her instinct was always to share information. Arnaud will see anything which I think may help him. Mistress Sand can dismiss me if she doesn't approve. Smiling at the joke no one else had heard, and very few would have understood if she had spoken aloud, Adele went back to Arnaud's viewpoint on a conspiracy involving himself and five other counselors to fix the price of fish protein. They had failed, but only because Arnaud had secretly backed a rival bid to do the same thing. Arnaud had come out of that very well, at a cost paid by his former partners and the Pantelarian public generally. People can change for the better. Adele didn't really believe that, but she did believe that an intelligent and motivated person could learn to imitate a better person. Tovera, as an extreme example, did very well at appearing to be a human being instead of the conscienceless killer that she really was. Conscienceless killers tended to have short lifespans. The people closest to them, the ones who would be described as friends and colleagues, if the killer had been human, quickly realized how dangerous the killer was to them if they allowed him or her to live. Tovera had found a niche by killing only people whom Lady Mundy directed her to kill. Not that Adele felt that she herself was really the same species as those with whom she worked. The sissies accepted her because she was Daniel's friend, and Daniel accepted her for some reason Adele couldn't fathom. Perhaps because I am his friend. While the Kaisha's junior officers were working on the levees and harbor, Daniel was closeted with Arnaud and the leaders of all the anti-Pantelarian factions on Corsera. They were trying to merge their forces into an effective weapon to take to Pantelaria. When they were discussing a merger, most of them were more concerned with enhancing their own position than with real coordination. 
that was normal for human beings, in Adele's experience, as well as from what she had learned by reading. Daniel was present as an advisor, but he had quickly become the referee. He was the only neutral at the conference, and he had the respect of all the other parties. Daniel had told Adele that he would not take an active part in what was at least the next thing to a coup when Arnaud returned to Pantelleria. He hadn't lied to her. Adele didn't imagine that Daniel would ever lie to her, but neither was she convinced that he would avoid being talked into coming along when the convoy of troops lifted, just as an advisor at first. Adele smiled faintly. It didn't matter to her, and it certainly didn't matter to Tovera, who could reasonably expect to be pointed at further targets. A corner of the display glowed amber. Adele reduced the data she was mining. The incoming call, though classed as non-emergency, was from Brother Graves, so she answered it immediately. Monday, she said. She was using video despite her long habit not to do so. Her duty now was to gather information as well as to dispense it, and a person's face provided a great deal of information. Graves's face was worried, though he was obviously trying to sound cheerful when he said, Lady Monday, I was wondering if you know where Brother Rickard is. I believed he was with you in brotherhood, Adele said, though I haven't given him any thought. She was mildly embarrassed at the truth of the latter statement. Granted, Cleveland was technically Daniel's responsibility, but she had undertaken to help Daniel, and technically was a coward's word. She was a Monday. Yes, Rickard has been acting as my aide here, Graves said. There's more going on in brotherhood affecting the community than there is usually, of course, and it really makes it easier to, well, to be away from Pearl Valley if it's two of us together, instead of just me. Now, well, I'm probably being silly. Graves cleared his throat. I'm not the only one in the conversation who feels embarrassed, Adele thought. Ricard went to the manor yesterday morning to coordinate the return of our contingent from Hablinger, Graves said. We've been helping with the reconstruction work, you know, since some members of our community have useful skills from before they joined us. I wasn't really worried when he didn't return immediately, but this morning I asked the officer whom Rickard had gone to see. Simply because it was what she did, Adele checked a directory on the left half of her display while she listened. The deputy adjutant in Brotherhood was a Lieutenant Bess Shahar, seconded from the Navy. She said that Rickard had left her office at about midday, but that she'd seen him in the lobby a few minutes later when she went to lunch, Graves said. He was with some spacers whom he seemed to know. So I thought perhaps Captain Leary had sent personnel to take him to Hablinger, and he hadn't had time to inform me. Ricard hasn't had contact with any spacers that I know of except the crew of your ship. Brother Graves, I'm going to break this call now, Adele said. I'll deal with the matter. Six and I will deal with the matter out. Daniel wore a Camo helmet during the present discussions because it gave him access to the Kaisha's database. Adele opened a two-way link to him. As it connected, she brought up a list of shipping in Brotherhood Harbor. Adele was already fairly certain of what she was going to find. The Kaisha wasn't quite the only starship whose complement Cleveland had had dealings with. Daniel swayed, but he held himself upright when the converted tank skidded over a dike and slammed down on the other side. The four other spacers took the shock with equanimity also. Bad as the ride was, a starship descending through an atmosphere bounced around worse. Hogg gripped a stocked impeller with his right hand, 
His left alone wasn't enough to prevent his hobnailed boots from slipping on the sloping armor. His whole considerable weight hit Daniel in the back like a giant beanbag. Daniel grunted, but he managed not to go down, or worse, to go over the side. The vehicle was a light air-cushioned tank with a superstructure of woven wire fencing. The six passengers clinging to the fence-stake strut supporting the basket badly overloaded it. Military vehicles were always overloaded in the field anyway, so the extra half-ton didn't prevent the makeshift bus from roaring across the paddies. It certainly prevented it from doing so smoothly, however, and the fact that the Pantelarian driver was a hot dog didn't help. Can't that stupid bitch slow down? Hogg growled, using Daniel's shoulder to brace himself upright again. Sorry, master. Won't happen again. She's not driving any faster than you would be if I'd let you, Daniel said, shouting over the intake rush of the dry fans. And there's the Kaisha right ahead. We're almost there. This tank was one of twenty which the expeditionary force had brought to Corsera as cavalry. Their armor was proof against slugs from the carbines carried by most of the fighters. Calling the miners malicious soldiers would be a stretch. But a burst from an automatic impeller would go through the hulls the long way. The fixed barbette holding a five-centimeter plasma cannon was thicker, but not a great deal thicker. The Pantelarians had converted half a dozen tanks into light trucks by welding a framework to the superstructure and wrapping fencing around it. The vehicles could still be used for combat as is in an emergency, though a workman with a cutting bar could remove the framework in a minute or two. The Delta region had very little civilian ground transport for the invaders to commandeer, so they had had to improvise. The jury-rigged trucks couldn't have been very satisfactory, but they would have greatly eased the problem of resupplying the strong points across the mud. The crust on this side of the Cephasis had dried to a thickness which could almost support the tank's six tons, but when the vehicle leaped over the dike, it splashed liquid mud to all sides. They didn't bog. It was almost impossible to bog an air-cushion vehicle unless it sank in over the fan's intakes but balls of mud spattered the passengers as they bulled their way forward. The next time I'll walk, said Vessie. She flicked mud off her visor, though that further smeared what was left. Or swim. We're almost there, Daniel said, smiling toward her. For a long time after Midshipman Dorst's death, Vessie hadn't been able to joke. The presence of Midshipman Cazalet, now past lieutenant, had been an even greater benefit to Vessi than it was generally to Daniel and the crew of whatever ship he commanded. The Pantelarian driver had a higher opinion of her skills than Daniel thought justified. She began to swing the vehicle when they were twenty feet from the base of the Kaisha's boarding ramp, planning to raise the leading edge of her skirts to break them to a stop. She had forgotten to allow for the extra weight of the passengers above the center of gravity. They didn't actually flip which might have been survivable in the soft mud or might not, because the passengers, even Hogg, instinctively threw their weight to the high side. The base welds of three struts cracked and the fencing sagged down, but the vehicle came to a halt. Everyone was still safe aboard, albeit in a cursing pile on the back deck. Evans pushed his way off the bottom of the pile and dropped to the ground, his face red. Daniel had brought both power room techs back with him, leaving most of the riggers to follow on a later run. I'll strangle the whore, Evans snarled, his voice choked with fury. He was very possibly the strongest person in the crew, squat where Wochins was rangy, and solid bone and muscle from his toes to the top of his bald head. 
Before Daniel could intervene, Evans didn't have the intellect to come up with a threat he didn't mean to carry out. Hogg put a hand on the big technician's shoulder. Come on, Curly, he said. You and me, we got better uses for a woman than that, don't we? Anyway, the mistress needs us on the ship right now, and I sure don't want to disappoint her. Oh, that's right, Evans said. Bloody hell, I should have remembered that. Thanks, Hogg. That was another entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible, to Christopher Rocchio, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Jukowitz. And the froth from a Promethean cup of ambrosia collected before that unfortunate fire-giving incident, along with thanks and praise for Charles E. Gannon, the author of Cain's Mutiny. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. Bye.